Today we're going to talk about the rebellion that causes desolation, which is basically looking at the eighth chapter of Daniel. And as I mentioned earlier, with the seventh chapter of Daniel, the whole book kind of takes a shift away from the life and the trials, you know, of Daniel and what he had to go through uh, in the courts of the, the Gentile kings. And this is a second half of the book is about prophecy. And uh, let's just start by reading the first verse of Daniel 8. It says, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So this is actually kind of going back, you know, a little backstory here that uh, would parallel with some of the things we've already covered. A vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So he's saying this is a subsequent vision. And we're going to go through this vision. And most, most Bible reading people agree about, about you know, what Daniel chapter 8 is all about, that it provides greater detail concerning the Greek empire that follows the Persian empire. All right? And if you remember, in previous messages, we looked at the big giant statue, and you know, we got the head and the shoulders and the belly and the legs. This is about the transition between the shoulders and the belly, which is Persia to Greece. And there's Daniel, he's in Persia, he's had a little bit of run-in with Persia. Well, what comes next? And what possible, you know, <laughs> what, what help does it offer people like you and me? Um, so what we're looking at here in Daniel 8 is an expansion on this dream of the metal statue. It's also an expansion upon Daniel's own vision of the, the four crazy beasts that come out of the sea. And this would be the transition from the bear to the leopard. So the Bible's kind of expanding, you know, on what you see or have already read. And the details that are provided concerning the Greek Empire, which is, you know, centuries after Daniel's life, uh, line up with the records of history really well. And actually, the 11th chapter goes into the next phase, which is really detailed. But this is the cha eighth chapter, and the, they line up so well that some say that they're a remarkable proof of the divine origin of scripture, okay? Fulfilled prophecy. Whereas others say, aha, this vision is so detailed that it must therefore have been written after the events occurred. How else could they know? And that's why, you know, in some of the previous messages, I've kind of dwelt a little bit on why Daniel is written when it says it's written, right? The Bible itself says that the vision uh, is recorded in around 550 BC during the, uh, the days of Belshazzar, long before the events, centuries before the events. And skeptics say, well, because it's so accurate, the prophecy must have been written around mm, 150 BC. It's about 400 years later. And that's why some of the stuff that I mentioned earlier comes into play, all right? Um, 150 BC, as you'll see, would be shortly after the events prophesied in chapter 8. So the skeptical argument begins with the assumption, well, prophecy is not possible. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit about assumptions uh, last time I was here, and assumptions are they're a big deal. The assumptions that you carry with you moving forward and reading scripture will 
color how you and how you read them, how you find God's word and what it means to you. So, you know, we, if the skeptic begins with the basic assumption, well, prophecy is not possible. You can't know the future in advance. That's just, <laughs> no. Uh, then, you know, the, the, the process is proceeding to move into scripture and finding fault, nitpicking at smaller matters, historical errors or perceived errors, linguistic matters and things like that. You know. And I, I didn't get bog it down with all that stuff. I dealt with some of the highlights of it in the previous messages. But almost all of these, all that I know of, all these little nitpicky things have been dealt with through findings in archaeology and ancient manuscripts which have come to light and things like that. And like I said, I've, I've gone through a few of those in previous messages. Daniel says that he recorded the vision during the days of Belshazzar the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, which would uh, put it about 11 years before the Persian conquest of Babylon, right? Uh, the third year of King Belshazzar, around 550 BC. That would be 220 years before Alexander the Great conquers Persia, 380 years uh, before Antiochus, who we're gonna, we're gonna look at. Uh, interesting character. And Antiochus is interesting because he is the one who causes the desolation in the temple to which Jesus refers to. The question I have for you, which will pop up on the slide soon, is who cares? Who cares? All right, who cares? You might think, well, look, wouldn't our time here on the Sabbath, on God's Sabbath, be better spent on matters of faith, our love, or moral instruction, moral behavior? The weightier matters of the law. Wouldn't that be, uh, you know, shouldn't we focus on that? Yet everything that the church has to say on these weightier matters of the law, faith, love, mercy, judgment, everything the church has to say, and therefore everything that I have to say, is based on Scripture. You're not here to listen to my personal philosophies. You're here to have someone teach from Scripture. All that we have to say on the way to your matters of the law is based on the authoritative revelation from our Creator. And without scriptural authority, you have no good reason to listen to the church over and above your own feelings or your own instincts or intuitions. And you have no reason to listen to me or anyone else who gets up here unless you agree with the authority of God's word and the reality of his revelation to us. And the book of Daniel, I put it to you again, is our largest collection of detailed, fulfilled prophecy. And therefore, a linchpin, if you will, a turning point in scripture. And you know, the only other place where you're going to get as many fulfilled prophecies is if you gather together the various prophecies of Christ's first coming. But the difference is that the prophecies in Daniel are verifiable by cross-referencing with the history books of human record. So human, you know, non-believers have written histories and they have record of all these various things, okay? And you can cross-reference them with the Bible which is a little different than what we get with the fulfilled prophecies that we get with Jesus' first coming. 
So Daniel contains, therefore, essential proofs about the divine origin of Scripture, and therefore its authority to speak to you on matters of morality. That is why you should listen to God's Word, because it's for real. And that's why I think going through fulfilled prophecy is important. It, it speaks to the authority in God's Word, and that we have something that we can latch onto. And you can latch onto it, and you can latch onto it, and I can latch onto it. And it's the same word for all of us. And that's important. So the next slide. The Medo-Persian Empire. Again, we've touched on this a little bit, so I'm going to zip through this, but this is verses 2 through 4. So let's get into the vision. And I, Daniel, verse 2, saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel. That's actually the political capital of uh, Persia, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and it was at the Ulai Canal, and I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. And it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So Susa is the future administrative capital of Persia, this ginormous empire, which you can see swallowed up the tiny little area there we know as Judah and Israel. So the ram with two horns is explicitly identified later with Persia. If you drop down to verse 20, we'll get there in time, but just for the sake of, uh, of uh, foreshadowing, it says, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the two kings of Media and Persia. That's very specific. Scripture doesn't always get that specific, so that's an interesting incident in Scripture. Uh, this is Persia we're talking about. The symbolism there, well, uh, after Cyrus, the Persians dominated the Medes. The whole empire was made up of two parts. That's the two horns of this, this beat, you know, animal. And one horn is larger than the other because the Persians dominated the Medes. Um, <clears throat> we also read that the, uh, you know, the ram charged westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. And he did as he pleased and became great. So this empire spreads to the north and the south and the east and the west and all, it's a lot of territory, right? But that's really not what we're here to talk about. Here's a guy, Alexander the Great, greatest of all time in some people's opinion, but Alexander the Great. Now let's just pick up in verse 5, okay? As I was considering, behold, a male goat greatest of all time, came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with great power and wrath. And I saw him close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and he struck the ram, and he broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the greater horn was broken. 
And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. The goat is also explicitly referenced to be Greece. So I wasn't just reading into the scriptures. I'm telling you this is what the scriptures say. If you drop down to verse 21 of the same chapter, it says, and the goat is the king of Greece. There are scriptures interpreting the vision for us. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. That is this man. Alexander the Great, quite a, quite a notorious person in history. Interesting character, not a good role model, but yeah, quite a guy. Uh, he is the first and greatest king. His name is Alexander, Alexander the Great. He's the prominent horn. And uh, Greece, you know, if you look at the, you read some of the details from the west, it, the attack comes from the west, and uh, Greece is west of Persia. Well, there's a little detail that's thrown in there. And uh, we read that the goat attacks from the west. Okay. Um, we're also told that the goat, and there's this, you know, picture, uh, biblical symbolism, the goat zooms across the land without its feet even touching the ground. Okay. So you can say, oh, a flying goat. Hmm. Well, it's meant to depict something that is also somewhat specific about uh, this man, Alexander. All right? Uh, it goes across the earth. That would be you know, the known earth at the time from the Israelite perspective. And the goat moves basically so fast that its feet don't even touch the ground. That's kind of what the scriptures are saying. This happens so fast that it's like flying. It's not meant to indicate, you know, like pigs fly or goats fly or, you know, kind of crazy stuff like that. It's just, it's speed. And one of the things that history does record is the incredible speed with which the Greeks overtook this whole area. You saw the area on the map. They did that within 10 years. It was incredible. And it went like all the way to India. Huge amount of territory that was covered. Um, so... Those are some historical details that are quite interesting. Now, uh, we also read that Alexander conquered, well, let's see, let's go back. So this area is all covered here, and it's a huge area, covers like uh, 1.5 million square miles. And his conquests weren't just conquests. They were more, I think, from a biblical perspective. His conquests spread the Greek language and culture across all this territory. And this accomplishment, I put it to you, prepared the world for the first century church of God. God laid the groundwork for the spread of the gospel through this Greek empire. Right? Wasn't a holy group of people at all. They were pretty nasty guys. But this is a preparation, if you will, for the rapid spread of the gospel. How? Because everybody was able to speak Greek. Prior to that, it had all been just little divided up kingdoms, and they all spoke different languages, and it would have been very difficult to get beyond your own little area. But now everybody's speaking Greek. And most of the known world, after this conquest, now had a common speech, Koine Greek. And that's what the New Testament's written in. And this is the language that's used to record the life of Christ, the teachings of the church. 
And Greek was very well adapted to expressing more nuanced, abstract ideas and concepts. And the New Testament is basically a commentary, if you will, in many ways, on the Old Testament. Go to Ephesians 1. And verse 10. I'm going to back up to verse 9. Paul drops in a little, little dose of history and perspective here and says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So when the fullness of time had come to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Galatians 4, just a couple of pages back. Uh, verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That fullness of time was partly fulfilled by this new empire, the spread of a language and a culture where you could communicate with everybody. It also, as we're going to see, meant some very difficult times for the people of Israel. But at the same time, it was working towards God's great purpose. And I think that Looking at that, I, I felt like it had a little bit of an application for us. Uh, if you're going through the sufferings of the, uh, the people of Israel as they're conquered, as they're uh, beaten down, as they're oppressed, they were also part of the setting of the stage. And so perhaps we should consider the same big picture perspective on our own times and our own suffering and some of the stuff that's going on. There are momentous changes going on in society and they affect us very often in negative ways, but they are also God's purpose being worked out on earth. And so well, big picture perspective through God's word can help us deal with our day-to-day -day struggles. If your suffering, if your difficulties have meaning and purpose, they are going to be a lot easier, if you will, to get through, to endure, to persevere. Okay. So we read that the goat attacked the ram with great fury. And history records, is another one of these little details, that yes, there was indeed a very intense hatred between the Persians and the Greeks. They'd been harassing each other and killing each other on the borders for, for a long, long time. And uh, they hated each other. Now, it told, we also were told that at the height of his power, this great man died and his kingdom was divided into four parts, the four horns. You'll see this in, in prophecy quite often. Uh, Alexander died in 323 BC, the height of his power. Right? And after his death, the empire was divided into four territories, which are on this map here. But after his death, the empire was divided into four territories. These are the four horns that follow, okay? So this is a very detailed fulfillment. The empire didn't have to break up into four parts. It could have been seven, could have been two, but it's four. And that was divided among his four generals because he didn't have any children. This parallels the four heads of the leopard that we read about in Daniel 7. And this is the transfer of of power yet again. But the Bible doesn't dwell on Alexander the Great, as great as he was, greatest of all time. <laughs> the Bible does not dwell on Alexander the Great. The actual focus of Daniel's prophecies 
is on someone who's a little more obscure. This guy. This man is Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, a name that he liked for himself. He's the real focus of scripture. Why? I think the most important thing, we're going to go through various reasons, but the most important thing is this. Jesus himself points back to this man. And I believe points to him as a template, if you will, for future persecution and signs of the end times. Generally not as uh, prominent a figure in human history as Alexander the Great. I, mean, I think the average person might have heard of Alexander the Great, but I don't think the average person's heard of this Antiochus IV, unless you're a student of scripture. And God's word draws you into history, whether you like history or not, God speaks to us through history in many ways. I mean, he speaks to us in many ways, his spirit, his word, but also through history. So we're in Daniel, and I would like to go to verse 9. So out of these uh, four partitions of this mighty empire, and out of these four kingdoms, one becomes powerful. It says in verse 9, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land, that being Israel. Who is this person? It's this guy. He's the eighth king of the Seleucids. That's one of the four horns, the four divisions of the Greek empire. And he comes to power and he rules from uh, 175 BC to 164 BC. He is the little horn who started small. And the details of his life back that up. I'm going to have to kind of summarize a lot of things. I'm not going to go into all the details of his life. Actually, um, chapter 11 gets into a lot of that. We don't need to at this point. So out of the four empires, one of them comes to be the most powerful and it controls the lands of Israel, the beautiful land. It's the Seleucid Empire, okay? And it's going to have a significant impact on the history of Israel. It becomes a biblical model for state-sponsored persecution against the people of God. It says that uh, one of them was a little horn which grew exceedingly. It started off small, okay? The horn that started off small, Antiochus IV, well, through various intrigues and nasty political business, Antiochus gains control over this empire. And as I mentioned, just keep this in mind. He's important because Jesus points back to him. Daniel verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 10. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. What, is, what does that mean? Well, this is very symbolic, of course. I think God sort of hides things from us sometimes, puts them in riddles, parables, and things like that. What is this talking about? Well, the people of God is what it's talking about. And the people of God are often referred to as a host, which is just an old-fashioned way of saying an army, God's army. Have you ever thought about the people of Israel or the people of God like that? We have a hymn in our hymnal that speaks of God's people like that, right? Don't we? Anyone know what it's called? Uh, yeah, Onward Christian Soldiers. 
That's a very common theme in scripture. All right, take a look at a couple of verses with me. That would be Exodus 12. Exodus 12, verse 41. Uh, it says, at the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord, this is the people of Israel, went out from the land of Egypt. The host of the Lord, the army of the Lord, the people of God. Okay. Uh, another one, if you would, would be Jeremiah 33, verse 22. It says, as the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so will I multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. So those are just some scriptural references, you know, as part of that whole Bible interprets Bible concept that we looked at last week. Uh, the host that's being spoken of here are the people of God, the, the, uh, the army of God, the host of God. And as we read there, their numbers are often compared to the stars, meaning a lot, okay? Which is where we get the phrase starry host, the host of heaven, okay? Now, we're talking about in its situation right there, the people of God. That would mean Israel or Judah, right? But if we move past the events of the second century, and we're going to do that, if we move beyond the second century, who would it be referring to at that point? Who are the people of God now? It's the church. And we'll see that there's a duality to this scripture, and so this is something that is also for the church. But in its you know, second century setting, this is the people of Judah. Now it says here in verse 10, that it threw some of these stars down to the ground and trampled on them. Uh, trampling is also something that we read about in scripture. You know, you read about the, the fourth beast and he trampled everything in, in sight and turned them into dust and just, you know, ground them into dust. Well, trampling is a biblical way of speaking of persecution, oppression. And uh, in his day, Antiochus persecuted, but he didn't persecute just for the fun of it. He had a goal. He had a goal that he wanted to fulfill. He envisioned a vast, powerful empire. I mean, he had a lot of territory, right? And what he wanted was a vast, powerful empire united by a common culture, a common language, and a common religion. It's a very, very uh, consistent thread in human history. This is something that people see as good. This is what we want. Why aren't we working towards it? The only problem is that we kind of want to do it without the God of, of the Bible. Make up our own gods, come up with the same kind of uh, layout. What Antiochus had in mind was basically Greek culture. Well, clearly, I mean, we conquered the world. <laughs> this is a superior culture, right? You know, kind of like uh, the United States of America thinks, well, everybody should become American, right? I mean, we're the greatest, so everybody should be like us, right? <laughs> they were no different. The Greeks wanted to, well, this man, Antiochus especially, saw a Greek culture and a Greek kind of religion and the Greek language. And, uh, you know, conquered people, well, they could keep some of their culture, you know, we'll kind of mush it all together as long as it fits in with the larger goal of a unified Greek culture. 
And within this grand, wonderful scheme, there was a problem. There was a fly in the ointment. The Jews, they were a problem. Why? Because they resisted being integrated and they resisted specific elements of Greek way of thinking and worshiping and that being kind of inserted into their worship of the true God of Yahweh. They resisted Antiochus and he got mad and he got vicious. And remember what I said that you know, Jesus points back to this guy and he, he is telling you and telling me and all readers of scripture, take a look at this guy the one who causes desolation. And he doesn't get super explicit about it, but I think that what we can perhaps infer is that maybe there's some things about this guy that we should list, you know, kind of listen to or read about and find out, what did this guy do? I think that in face of a culture that is increasingly hostile to the church of God, being aware of, of these things can help us get through them to persevere because culture wants to assimilate you. That's its goal. You know, you can keep your thing, you know, you, yeah, you can worship on Saturday and all that stuff, that's okay. You know, you can have your thing just as long as you acknowledge my thing as well. And we'll just kind of like put it all together. You acknowledge what my truths are and you can keep your truths and you can have your thing and we'll just have a big unified culture, all right? The only problem is, as you well know, there's a number of things that God says, you can't agree to that. You cannot do that. I'm not getting super specific on that, but I think there's a number of things that uh, God's people must always resist. Various religious teachings, traditions that are all around us. And it is, it's always been thus for, for God's people. And that's why, to the very end, God's message in some ways is, you got to come out of all this. Come out of her, my people. You know, Peter said, be saved from this wicked and adulterous generation. And he was speaking to the people of his own day. But it's also for us. And I think very much we see this uh, almost irresistible move towards assimilation and absorption into a larger culture where we just, we all accept one another. And it sounds beautiful. And it sounds great, and there's aspects to it that are meaningful and helpful. The fly in the ointment is there are some things that God says, no, you can't do that. You can't, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You have to maintain truth over and above all things. Okay, so let's get back to chapter 8 and take a look at verse 11. Okay, so this little horn, this Antiochus guy is what we're talking about here, okay? Mr. No-Nos, it, that's him, became great, even as great as the prince of the host. The prince of the host. Who would that be, do you think? The prince of the people of God. I'm speaking there of the one who became Jesus Christ, in my opinion. He's a prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. So what, what's going on here? It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Antiochus 
is up to some, some tricky stuff here. What Antiochus did in his life, and this is well documented, is he basically set himself up as the equal to God himself, as great as the prince of the host. Uh, he, that's why he was called Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God in the flesh. I am Antiochus Epiphanes. I am God in the flesh. And he had coins minted that said that, you know, like our coins say, in God we trust. And he had coins saying, Antiochus, God in the flesh. Okay, that's where this guy was coming from. And, uh, you know, reading this scripture here, it's telling us, uh, let's go on. Uh, and the host will be given over to it with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So th this guy's up to some interesting stuff. He declares himself to be equal to God himself, and he's going to rule over the Jews as if he were the prince of the people of God. And, uh, you know, Antiochus desired total allegiance, worship even, and uh, he gave himself the title Antiochus Epiphanes, God Made Manifest. And in this way, he gives us a foretaste of the persecution at the end time, the persecuting end time ruler. That should make you think of a couple of scriptures. That would be 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So that is a tie in there, the man of sin. This Antiochus guy is a type of the man of sin, the lawless one to come. Go to Revelation 13, verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So this man is also a foreshadow of the beast. So I think... You know, there are aspects of his life which are perhaps instructive. We can learn a little bit about the nature of the beast and the man of sin by looking at this man's life. And I would caution anyone, though, to not get too specific because the duality of prophecy also entails change and different aspects, although the principles remain the same. Okay, so... I've said all this about this guy Antiochus and how we can learn from his life. What are a few things that might pop out in looking at the details of what this guy actually did? Okay, here's some stuff. Antiochus prohibits the daily sacrifice to Yahweh in the temple. We kind of read about that in the verses that we went over just now, right? He takes away the daily offering. So you guys cannot worship God in the way that he's instructed you to. It's against the law. That's what this guy did. These were tough times for the people of God. It was against the law to worship God in the prescribed manner. Number two, he steals all the gold and treasure from the temple to pay his army. Well, that's pretty common. <laughs> I don't think the Church of God has a lot of money. <laughs> I'm not really super worried about that one, but it could also mean that your financial resources could be attacked. 
Number three, this is interesting. For the Jewish people in those days to circumcise your son became punishable by death. So if you had a son and you wanted him to become part of the covenant with God and you wanted to circumcise, if the government found out about it, they would kill you. That's this guy Antiochus. So once again, you are not allowed to worship God in the way that he tells you to. You can worship God in other ways, can't you? You can still have your God, but you can't do this. He was trying to stamp out Jewishness and the uniqueness of it. But Jewishness, really we ought to focus on obedience. Another thing this guy did, and I think this one is, this is really scary. To own a copy of the scriptures, the Bible, became punishable by death. Ever thought about that? You may not have a Bible in your home. If we catch you with one, you're going to be executed. And that's the phrase, truth is thrown to the ground, I believe. Uh, another one, um, Antiochus is noted for sacrificing a pig on the altar. So not only was worship of the true God forbidden, in the temple, he went in there and used the same altar to sacrifice an unclean animal, and then he set up a statue of Zeus in the temple. All right. I told you he was a nasty guy, right? These are just the highlights. There's all kinds of uh, stuff about this guy. His goal was to crush them as a separate and distinct people. We went through Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, or Cyrus's Persia, with Daniel, right? And, you know, they, they, they wanted everybody to be one big happy family, right? Let's all have a common culture. Uh, but they continued to let the Jews maintain their unique forms of worship, you know, wanting them to kind of blend in and all that stuff. But Antiochus was different. And remember, Jesus points back to this guy and says, take note about the rebellion that causes desolation. Antiochus was different. He was provoked by their stubbornness and he sought to obliterate worship of the true God and totally replace it. No really accommodation here at all. He wanted to obliterate it and replace it with Greek forms of worship. There were no accommodations or legal protections like we saw in Daniel. We saw that when Daniel got legal protection from Nebuchadnezzar. We saw that when Daniel got legal protection from the Persian Empire. We went through the Bible reading and we were just going through the book of Esther, right? What happened there? In the last reading, Esther, through her courage, managed to get legal protection for the people of God. This was under the Persian Empire. But when the Greek Empire took over, that all went, I think, one of the things that is important for God's people is to not put a lot of confidence in, in human government. You know, you might be protected today, doesn't mean you're going to be protected tomorrow. So who do you rely on? Who are you going to call, right? Our reliance needs to be on God, not on the law. Well, I'm, I'm okay, you know. As long as the Supreme Court is situated this way or that way, I feel pretty good. I feel safe. That provides you with no safety whatsoever. 
The law of the land can change overnight. That is not where your confidence ought to lie. I hope it doesn't. And if it does, then rethink it, please. Rethink it. So I, as I've mentioned, this is perhaps another insight into the nature of the final persecution. Mixing, blending, compromising, that's no longer an option. The goal is complete obliteration. And what purpose does musing on all this grim stuff have? Is it just so I can scare you? Well, I hope not. <laughs> no. Is it to manipulate you? Get you to come to services more regularly? Well, John 14, verse 29, one of my favorite scriptures on prophecy says, no, no. Jesus says to his disciples, I'm telling you these things in advance before they happen. I'm speaking of the resurrection. Why? So that when they happen, you know, I told you, this is how it's going to happen. The I mean, the, the death of Jesus could have been like the, the last straw for a disciple, but he'd been told in advance, this is what's going to happen. So when it happens and he's caught in this terrible, blah, he knew it was going to happen. Perhaps he didn't believe it or understand it the way it was intended, but when it happened, he knew. So these things are given to you for your help. Okay, let's drop down to verse 13, which says, Then I heard a holy one speaking. So we're back in Daniel 8. I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, How long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So that is where I got the phrase, the rebellion that causes desolation. Here in the ESV, it says the transgression that makes desolate. Uh, other translations say the rebellion that causes desolation. And this is one of the phrases that Jesus is pointing us back to. It's important because when Jesus points us back to this abomination of desolation, he says, when you see stuff like this happening, you know events are moving quickly. All right, so the other phrase there is the uh, 2,300 years, or sorry, 2,300 evenings and mornings. Frankly, I, I don't think that that's fully understood. I've heard various people talk about it, and I've looked at interpretations, and I'm just going to tell you, uh, when I looked into it, sorry, I couldn't give you anything, so I'm just going to say, I don't know. Right? The 2,300 evenings and mornings, I don't know. There are ways you could kind of tie it in with fulfillment, but I, I, I find them very complicated, and so I'm going to just jump over them. Okay? All right. What we do know is that the Jews created a peasant army, and they defeated the Greek army. Big and powerful as they were, they defeated the army of Antiochus, and the temple was actually re uh, they took it over again, and they purified it. It was reconsecrated in the year uh, 164 B.C. And that is something you can read about in the first book of Maccabees. And then there's a reference to it here in John 10, verse 22. It says, At that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter time." That's what they're referring to, this time when the Jewish army actually rose up, they revolted against this, and they, they got the temple back under control. And that's kind of a different story. I'm not going to really get into that a whole lot, but that happened. 
Verse 14 says, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So there's another little detail of history and prophecy that tie together. Okay, the next section here, clarification about the vision. I've already kind of referenced it a little bit. But it says, then I, Daniel, had seen the vision, and I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice behind, sorry, between the banks of the Eli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. The vision is for the time of the end. So the one who looked like a man is a member of the God family here, which would... I believe, be the one who later became Jesus in the flesh. And he's going to clarify. So not only does Jesus point back to this or talk about this desolation when he's there in the flesh and speaking to them on the Mount of Olives, here he is talking to Daniel. Well, actually not. He's speaking through Gabriel. But this is the one who became Jesus in the flesh, the one like a man. He's clearly superior to Gabriel. He's giving him commands, saying, Gabriel, do this, do that. And when Daniel sees this one like a man, his response is to fall down flat on his face before him, which is a response that people have when they, when they see this being. An example of that would be uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28, I fell flat on my face, or Revelation 1, verse 17. Those are examples of how a person responds when this one like a man appears to them. What God wanted Daniel to know is that, Daniel, this vision is for the time of the end. Wait, 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 what? what? What are we talking about? The time of the end? Haven't I been going through all this history and I've been showing you that Antiochus fulfilled this and the Greek Empire and the blah, 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 and I went on through all this and I gave you dates and I showed it in oh, 150 BC and all this. What? The vision's for the time of the end. Wow, it's weird. That's weird. All the events that uh, I've been telling you about supposedly took place between the years 167 and 164 BC. A terrible three-year-long period of persecution for the Jewish people. And yeah, they did, and they provide a compelling proof of the divine origin of the, and the authority of Scripture. I believe that's their purpose. I believe that's their importance. Yet we're told that all this stuff relates to the time of the end, which means it relates to the people who were there at the time of the end. For all we know, that could be us. As I mentioned, Jesus pointed back to this particular prophecy as events that had not yet taken place, didn't he? He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, so he knew, and everybody else knew, that the abomination of desolation had already taken place. The Jews know their history. They even had a festival in the winter to celebrate the rededication of the temple. Everybody knew. But Jesus points to the scripture and he says, Ah, when you see this happen, yet future, then you know the time is short. Right? That's what he said. That they were events that would signal the time of his return. 
So Jesus himself is where we get the understanding that prophecy is dual in nature. And it can be fulfilled in more ways than one. And the past fulfillment very often gives us insight into the future fulfillment. So the details of the first fulfillment, which took place 167 to 164 BC, yes, they are God's given proof to us of Scripture's certainty. And that should convince you and help you have a firm understanding and a conviction concerning the certainty of what Scripture says is still yet to come. If it was right in the past, you have much better grounds for believing that the future, it will be as we are told. So we're, we're in Daniel. Let's go back to it and read verses 18 through 22. It says, And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face on the ground, but he touched me, and he made me stand up, and he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be in the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. For as the ram that you saw with two horns, and these are the horns of the king of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. A master of intrigue is another way it's interpreted. That's Antiochus. So all this stuff's leading up to this guy, Antiochus. Alrighty? So what this interpretation here from Gabriel is, is getting at is that all this stuff that I'm telling you about this ruler, this guy, Antiochus, is actually meant for the end time. So that interpretation is from the Bible itself. And then we get some very clear explanations of who's who and what's what in history, right? Okay. Now, let's pick it up again here. It says, um, let's read uh, verse 23 through 25. It says, And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. A master of intrigue, if you will. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. That's an interesting phrase. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Whoa, that's scary too, isn't it? By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Wow. There's some more detail, okay? Toward the end of the Greek Empire, this guy's going to rise up. It's Antiochus. He fits the mold. You know, Gabriel's telling him all this and saying this is pertaining to the end time, but it was also fulfilled in Antiochus, right? Well, that's interesting. So we're, we're given some points here, some interesting things we learn. We can tie back to this guy, Antiochus. He rebels against the laws of, of the true God. All right, that's one. The lawless one, the man of sin, the beast. So you can expect that the people who live in the end time are going to see rebellion against the laws of God, and perhaps if we look at the details of Antiochus, legal action. We're told that he, he basically gets to do his own thing until God deems punishment to be due. 
the appropriate time. We're told that he's a master of intrigue, and that fits Antiochus and uh, fits his political actions very well. And actually, if uh, chapter 8 is an expansion on the two phases of the metal statue, the whole 11th chapter of Daniel is a huge expansion on Antiochus and his mastery of intrigue. Okay, so we're told that he succeeds not by his own power. He succeeds through the power of Satan. And you can take a look again at the man of sin, you can take a look at the beast, and you read through the description of these other passages that talk about the same person, and you're told, yes, in Revelation 13, verse 2, the beast is powered by Satan. Thessalonians 2, verse 9, the man of sin is powered by Satan. So there's something going on that's really kind of beyond our ability to deal with all humanity. We're also told that uh, he's very prideful. And the pride exhibited or you know, displayed by this person really kind of fits Antiochus of history. I mean, the guy minted coins in his own image and said, I am God in the flesh. It takes a lot of pride to do that. It's a significant arrogance that we also see in the lawless one at the end. And again, read through 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and you'll see that. Read through the description of the beast in Revelation. Uh, chapter 19 would be another good place. It also says that he destroys, but not by human power. Or sorry, he is destroyed, but not by human power, but, but directly by God. Which again, you'll see that with the man of sin. You know, he is destroyed when Christ destroys him with the breath of his mouth. The beast is destroyed by the returning Christ. All right, well, that's all, you know, pretty grand stuff. What does it mean for, for folks like you and me? Well, I think part of this that, that could be helpful for you or for me is to understand that forces are at work in the things that we see going on in society and human history that are beyond our ability to control. I mean, that's probably, you've probably already come to that conclusion already. But Satan's involvement in human history is important. It's malicious and malevolent, and it's not working towards good things for the people of God or for humanity as a whole. Human beings, and God's people especially, cannot overcome Satan by their own power. They cannot. God has to save us from Satan's destructive influence. And we must have that recognition of the forces at work in this world. You know, and we're told, be aware of his devices so that you can resist. It's a force at work. Sometimes I think, you know, we, we, we don't want to think about that. Well, you know, Satan, yeah, but I don't really see it. The scriptures tell you, especially the New Testament says, Look, there's something going on here, and it's working against you, and it's vicious, and it's unpleasant, unkind, and you need to resist it, and you need to be aware of it, and that will help you. So let's finish off here in Daniel. Um, we're, we're down to verse 26. It says, The vision of the evenings and the mornings that you've been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So that's his way of saying this time of the end is many, many days off in the future. And I, Daniel, was overcome and I lay sick for some days. And then I rose and I went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So this is a vision of the final trial and test that comes upon the people of God. The truth can be outlawed. The people of God can be overwhelmed, overpowered. 
The people of God can be trampled into the dirt. So some people don't fare so well. Other people do, and that's a message that we've talked about at other times. And Jesus says, okay, well, all this stuff going on, scary, scary, scary. What shall you do? He says, pray. Pray that you be accounted worthy to escape these things. And you're not going to get your salvation or your you know, protection from God any other way. It's not going to come through politics. Putting the right person in the White House isn't going to make any difference at all. When Satan wants to do his thing, and when the appointed time comes, nothing you say, nothing you can do will change it. Your hope is in God and God alone. Make that your priority. Make that your focus. The rest of it is all just shifting sands. Thinking about end-time persecution is scary. Not uplifting. <laughs> I know that. I've you know, kind of set a project here. We're going to go through the book of Daniel. This is what we're doing. I hope that we have enough time that we do talk about things that are uplifting. We do talk about the weightier matters of the law. I think we do. But here we go. End-time persecution is scary, and Jesus talked about it himself. And here are some things that God offers us. The fact that he has told you in advance is a form of assurance that if you happen to be among those who see these things happen, God has a purpose for it. It is not just you being caught up randomly in the jaws of the universe and chewed to pieces and spit out. God has a purpose for everything that he's doing. And he's given you an indication even of his duration so that you have assurance that it comes to an end. It's actually a short amount of time. And it will accomplish the purpose he has for it. The events at the end will demonstrate that human beings are completely helpless to overcome the forces of spiritual wickedness at work in the world. We cannot accomplish the things that we want to do through our own virtue or our own knowledge or our own smartness. We're just not that great. We can do some amazing stuff. I mean, human beings, as God said, you know, if I don't, if I don't control these people, anything they, can, anything they set their mind to do, they can do. We're amazing. We're created in the image of God. We're pretty cool. We're awesome. But we cannot overcome the forces of spiritual wickedness in this world. We're not able to do that. We need God's help, and we need to turn to him, and we can, and he gives us that option all the time. And we're incapable, though, of having a right relationship with him on our own terms. How do we find a right relationship with God? Through repentance and overcoming and receiving of God's Holy Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us. That's how we get a right relationship with God, not by anything that we do ourselves. All our traditions and our theories and our self-proclaimed ways of approaching our Creator do not work. And one of the things that we must do, we must do, to have a relationship with God is once we've gone through the repentance and, and we've focused on our spiritual misgivings, we need to trust God and obey God. You must obey God. Any plan to develop a relationship with God 
or deal with the problems of this world that do not involve obedience towards God are gonna fail. They're just no good. It's so simple, trust and obey. And that is something that you and I can do right now.